Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the producer of this show. Today, I'm pleased to present the first of a three-part series called Future Proof, put on by Bradley Zero's record label and creative platform, Rhythm Section International. Rhythm Section has been a linchpin of the UK's dance music scene for more than a decade. Bradley hosts a popular show on NTS, puts out records, and holds concert series all over London. With Future Proof, the Rhythm Section team put on masterclasses hosted by world-class artists that cover topics from radio DJing to music production and managing your career. Today's exchange is a live recording from one of these Future Proof masterclasses, which was held in May with none other than Jordan Rakai. For those of you who aren't familiar with Jordan, he's a multi-instrumentalist, vocalist, and producer whose work dips into soul, hip-hop, and electronic music. He's now based in London and has released on Ninja Tune, Rhythm Section, and has collaborated with a number of Grammy and Oscar Award-nominated artists. His masterclass, which is moderated by Bradley Zero, is a really fascinating listen for artists at any stage in their career. He talks about how to build a career as an independent musician, tracing his beginnings in his mom's basement, to moving to London for the first time, and giving himself what he calls a four-month buffer budget to get his music career off the ground. He also talks about how forcing himself to collaborate with new musicians inspired so much of his sound, and how and why he transitioned from working alone to working with a big agency and signing deals with labels. Again, I had sort of hit a creative wall where in Australia, my whole career up to moving to London, everything I played and recorded and, um, you know, controlled every part. But there was an element of like coming to London where there are lots and lots of great musicians with different styles as well. And so I would have a session with another keyboard player and he would slightly influence the sound. And then that changes your sound because, you know, it's not all me. It's sort of like a collaborative albums so like all of my albums since then have been through different collaborations and yeah it's it's through collaboration I think I've grown most with my sound. Beyond music there are some really valuable insights in this talk about other aspects of sustaining a creative career too. Jordan says that forcing himself to maintain interests outside of his music career like meditation and sports has been invaluable for his creative practice as has drawing strict boundaries around his working and living environments and taking time and space away from the studio. I truly feel like listeners at any stage of their career can take a lot away from this talk. So without further ado, here is Bradley Zero and Jordan Rakai with the first episode of Future Proof. Thanks for listening. Hello everybody, welcome to Masterclass number three from Rhythm Section's Future Proof program. We are over the moon to welcome the one and only Jordan Rakai today. I'm also joined by Rhythm Section boss, Bradley Zero, and I myself am Henry. Big thanks to Jumbi for having us and uh, everyone for coming today. It's gonna be really lovely. If you're tuned in at home, thank you for watching and listening. Like, comment, subscribe. Love saying that. So, without further ado, the topic today is building a sustainable career as an artist. We have Jordan Rakai here with us, and I thought it would be apt if Bradley gave a little... Uh, talk up of uh, Jordan and their relationship. So take it away. Yeah, well, uh, hello and thanks everyone for coming. Hi, Jordan. Hi. Um, so I thought it would be great to invite Jordan to this specific topic because uh, his his growth as an artist in the relatively short time I've known him um, has been quite astronomical, but not only impressive in terms of like the scale and the the personal growth and the musical expansion should we say but um i think he's done it with such grace and in a in a way that's felt natural but also never forced and very kind of uh just inspiring from the outside so i i met jordan well i came across jordan's music in australia i went to a record shop in melbourne called Northside, 
and the owner, Chris Gill, handed me this 12-inch, and he's like, you got to hear this, man. And I, I brought it home, and it just sat on a pile for a few months until one day I just decided to pick it out and listen to it, and it was just this this light bulb moment where I remember just thinking, wow, like this this guy's got something. And uh, I I think I messaged you on Instagram. Yeah, I think so. And then we just started chatting, and uh, and it turned out that Jordan was thinking about coming to London. Um, and a year or so later, he did. And actually, the first day he arrived, he came straight to Rhythm Section Party at the pool hall. And uh, we've kind of been tight ever since and ended up working together on different projects, notably the Dan Kai release. Um, well, two releases. And um, yeah, I just thought he'd have a lot to share. Uh, and is not only a very uh, accomplished musician, but quite the orator. And and actually really funny. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's uh, that's that's why we invited Jordan and um, over to Henry to kind of uh, guide the conversation and, and open it with the first question. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Bradley. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've achieved so much since your first releases in 2013. Uh, you've collaborated with FKJ, Tom Mish, Disclosure is a Grammy nomination on that record, and uh, Nightmares on Wax, name a few. Presumably you were quite fresh and uh, inexperienced, perhaps you were experienced with music, but maybe the broader context of the music industry. Can you tell me a bit about that process, being young, releasing music, and learning along the way about just everything about being young and being young what what did it look like for you so um well that time of my life i left high school just trying to rush through it quickly the, the less important stuff i left high school and i was going to study engineering and my parents were like um pushing me to do music and so i studied a music sort of, they're called TAFE in Australia, but it's sort of like a community college, American equivalent. Um, not that we're in America. Um, but I just did the sort of thing where you learn covers and you perform and you learn about Beethoven, really like sort of basic stuff. But that was where I made a few connections. And I remember there was a class that said, um, what is a project releasing an EP? This is what it looks like. Um, Here's an EPK, which is sort of an electronic press kit. This is what you need to do, write a bio, you know, the basic stuff of what to do. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this because as a project, it was one of our projects in university. And so I wrote my first six songs, first original songs out of a row um, and released it for free on SoundCloud and Bandcamp um, just as a fun experiment because I was like, I, I had to do it anyway for a project for university, but I was like, I'll also put this out. Um, but putting it out, I didn't think I was putting it out. I just uploaded it online so that my family could hear it as well, if you know what I mean. And um, with that, it's just, it became sort of a very organic, back in the days of SoundCloud reposting system and it got reposts quite fast. Um, at the time, you know, it got like a hundred plays in a week, which was a lot for me back then. And then my mum posted on her Facebook, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And And I was working at a supermarket um, at the time so and all my bosses were like heard you on the radio you know that sort of thing um, and so that's what my life looked like back then it was like a uh, university assignment that turned into sort of like a throwaway release that was the sort of launch pad of um, the whole journey really and then from there I was like oh, okay I'll just do another one because that worked um, and then I literally just made another five songs and that was the next release which is the one Bradley heard um, so they were my first 10 songs I ever wrote really, cause I didn't really think back then of culling songs or, you know, writing 20 songs and choosing four. It was sort of like, I'm just going to make five and get them out and sort of, um, yeah, just, um, what's it called? Not content. Cause that's a 2022 thing, but it's more like getting stuff out was what I wanted to do. Just constantly getting music out was the way I wanted to like. Be busy and and Franklin's room was the first those first set of tracks yes. that you made as a university project. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We recorded them in the university studio, you know. Um 
with a little two in not two inch um two input um thing and we recorded drums separately somewhere else but yeah that was my first six songs wow and the second ep was that self-released or did you work with someone on it it was released with a record label so i did my first six songs and did a show um but doing a show at that time was hard because i only had six songs so there's lots of covers in the show and then someone at that show um one of the heads of a record label soul has no tempo an australian label was there was there and were, were like would love to release your next project and I was like, what does that mean? Because I've just released my last project. I mean, do you mean you're going to upload it for me? Um, and they were like, no, you know, we're going to press it to vinyl. Um, and at the time, they, they were sort of presenting me. They were like, we have a surprise for you. They presented me this sort of document and also said it's going to vinyl. Um, but to me, I didn't. it was so alien, the, the formality of it all. Um, I, I just did it at the time. I was quite naive, but I just sort of, I was like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll be cool to have a vinyl. Because this is sort of when it was a little bit less of a thing. Um, not that it's ancient, it's 2014, but it was like vinyl was sort of on the up, you know, and they were like, we can get you a vinyl. I was like, okay, I'm down. And then I just made another five tunes and yeah, that's how it happened. Incredible. Was that in Australia? That was in Australia. Um, and that was at a time when I was still working at the supermarket, but saving up um, the money to then go into a proper studio this time and have to pay musicians and that sort of thing. But it was like sort of living the double life of, luckily I had a night fill job um, at a grocery store. So my just, my night started at nine and finished at like 3 a.m. So I had obviously slept in late, but then I had all day to, to write and then, yeah, I would go and work at night. Yeah. Incredible. And how long was this period of time for you? So that was sort of two years of um, both EPs, working at the supermarket, writing music, going to university. And it came a point where um, everything was, I know it's so like first world problem, but everything became quite easy. I was living at my mum's house. I had a job um, that was very easy to do. I was making music um, and I sort of wanted a change, like a lifestyle change. And that's when I was like, um, I'm going to come to London, totally change my situation. Um, I had saved up so much money from the supermarket. Um, and yeah, I had about four months of expenses covered in London. And yeah, and I just did it. I was originally going to be a short trip, but yeah, I'm still here eight years later. What was your uh, impression of London? What, what were you coming here for? How much did you know about the industry and the, the music scene and and did you know what you wanted to get out of it or was it just really like, I need to leave this town? And it, it was, it was, I needed to change, but it was also the, the fact that, um, even though we lived in like an online world back then where you can access anything, it was, it was like where I grew up in Brisbane, Australia is very like small city in a small country. Um, and it wasn't like being around, I wanted to sort of be around stuff always, you know, there would be gigs in my city every two weeks whereas in London there was multiple gigs a night in London you know that sort of thing it's just a massive change so I came I went to jam sessions you know I, I messaged every person that I was a fan of in London um just said hey I'm an artist from Australia here's my EP it was like a massive copy and paste template I sent out to 10 people oh uh, more than that way more than that um just on Twitter and social and SoundCloud days as well and Instagram and I got maybe two or three replies from people um, that were in the industry. And then and we knew each other, but um, yeah, it was like very, I was very driven on sort of infiltrating a new world because the main thing for me back in um, Brisbane, not that it's music related, but was like social anxiety because I was so comfortable at home. Um, I had my friendship circles, it was like breaking out of my comfort zone was hard because it you know it's there i can fall right back into the safety net if you know what i mean but in a new city where i knew no one um it was like i have to you know i had to have to have a session um so i had to go and meet a stranger and make a song from scratch and that's when it all that's when the muscle kicked in if that makes sense and also i think just being in a moving to a new place and just taking just saying yes being uh being in that kind of state of mind where you're just looking to meet people and collaborate and just see what happens and and i think you know for anyone building any kind of career you can get a bit stuck in the 
the the the final destination whereas really it's these little chance encounters that could change your whole path it, it massively is i mean i had a session with a guy um total throwaway i had a session with this person over here let's say and they said i have a friend you should work with and so i messaged that guy as a one-off um and a small thing like he would use a 30 second reverb on a guitar and that totally shaped the second half of my debut album which is very like ethereal um because i discovered a 30 second reverb you know what i mean so it's and then that went away i told my drummer at the time i was like man do you know you can do this as well not it's not just using like atmospheric music it's like you can chuck it on a vocal throat you know small stuff like that it was hundreds well not hundreds but i did sort of like 50 sessions in the first two months so there's like every day i was sort of trying to meet someone um, or going to a jam session or i'm just trying to digest it all because i still at that time thought it was like a short-term thing and i wanted to like utilize london and go back to the small town so i wanted to you know capitalize on it totally and are those relationships still enduring yeah so all of my earliest friends um for example my drummer all my whole band, but also all those collaborators that are London-based. I mean, actually, you said none of them, but like Loyal Connor and Tom Mish, oh, you said him, but they were all at that same stage of their career back then. Um, and I just messaged them. Um, yeah, and it was like a let's hang out and play FIFA, and then it turned into let's have a session, and then, yeah, you have a session with him, and then it became like an intertwining sort of friendship cesspool of music. Uh, and then yeah we've sort of grown they've grown um and i'm yeah sort of growing in a different way we've gone on different roads we still sort of collaborate we've gotten bigger networks as our careers have progressed and is there a network there for i guess maybe non-music related advice and feedback like whether it's business or industry yeah or otherwise well yeah so when i came to london i was self-managed um at the time, that's not what I thought I was, but that's that's the reality. I was the one making the music, but also trying to find a venue and, and book a show. So the first show I played, Bradley was at, and I went to see a show there. Um, it's called St. Pancras Church in St. Pancras. Um, and I saw a show there as a fan of someone, and I just emailed them saying, how much do you cost to hire? You know, the sort of thing a manager would you and say can I do this date you know and then I had to get a ticket link and that sort of thing and then announced the show and that was like my beginnings and through that some fans had come who were connected with managers lots of managers messaged me sort of found out I was in London um and I had lots of meetings with managers um saying you know hey we can make you we can get you to the we can get you signed to record deals and all that stuff and I at the time, again, I was naive and young. I was like, man, I'm so down for anything. But there was also part of me that you hear stories when you're young in your career of like the evil music industry. And so I was quite reluctant and stubborn anti-industry. Um, but that was just my ignorance. But yeah, I met lots of people through these networking, through jam sessions. I would hang out with a drummer and he's like, well, I'm friends with the manager of that singer. You should catch up, you know, that sort of thing. So managers and then I played these shows and then that potential manager may have invited a booking agent and it slowly started growing there yeah incredible um and throughout that period I presume this is still the first couple of years of you being in London yeah did you did you sort of find that you were approaching music differently with being in this city in a new place yeah, I think the biggest thing was collaboration was the biggest collaboration on my own music because I'd done lots of stuff making beats or singing for other people. But um, again, I had sort of hit a creative wall where in Australia, my whole career up to moving to London, everything I played and recorded and, um, you know, controlled every part. But there was an element of like coming to London where there are lots and lots of great musicians with different styles as well. And so I would have a session with another keyboard player and he would slightly influence the sound. And then that changes your sound. Cause you know, it's not all me. It's sort of like a collaborative album. So like all of my albums since then have been through different collaborations and 
like the first album was very, I was like targeting specific styles of players, like funk bassists or, or whatever. And then they would come in and have their sound. And then my record sounded like it sounded through those musicians, if that makes sense. And then the next record, I wanted to work with more electronic um, producers or anything like that. And that affected my second album in a sonic way as well. So it's been the collaboration really, as well as living in London and um, being in the hustle, you know, being in the city that's sort of always on the grind. But um, yeah, it's, it's through collaboration. I think I've grown most with my sound. Great. And from the living here did you have enough work were you living comfortably was it a hustle yeah you said that the first few months were sorted because of your your previous work in australia but how did you survive in that time so the first four months yeah i had savings and then i played this show um so i moved in on december the 31st so i went to Braddy's new year's eve party um and then i had went to see a gig in january saw that show at the venue and then I booked my first show in February um and so on a just a logistical to give you an idea it was like 100 tickets and I think I did 10 pound a ticket and the venue was like 200 pounds so there's like 800 pounds I had there I got from that show then I just played solo so there's no expenses other than the venue um so I was like okay I'm sorted for another month of rent and food and it was it was very much like my buffer I used to call it my buffer is increasing. Do you know what I mean? So I had four months, but because I did that show two months in, I gave myself sort of five and a half months. And then I made a beat for someone and got 50 pounds. And it was sort of like adding, I was, I was on the grind, but I was sort of safe because I had months buffer of income. And then I played another show, which is a 300 cap venue. It was more expensive, but I had to pay my band, but I still came away with like 800 pounds or something. And again, I, it was sort of living really close to the edge, but luckily I had the buffer. Um, I kept being like, I'm safe. It's all good. And then as I, you know, as I started getting more and more closer, but beyond the threshold of, um, comfortability, I, I started doing more stuff that I was less into doing musically like making a beat for an artist potentially I didn't wasn't into or like playing a session keyboard on um a song for someone I like I think I did a Twitter post saying like hey I I was sort of doing it like a I would love to play on your track but I was like I I need a hundred pounds for my day rate you know like um and at that time yeah that was like my sort of playing on a song day rate and so I was like okay I'm sorted for my groceries this month but the first six to nine months was was pretty low income, but um, I had the buffer. <laughs> Creatively hand to mouth. Yeah, it was very much, but it was very satisfying doing that. And I felt like I was finally living because um, I was just living at my mum's before not having to pay rent. So um, I was, which was obviously amazing, but um, it's nice to be like, hey, I'm doing this, you know, I'm like paying a show. And I could always, I always thought I could just put another show on for sale. If I, um, yeah, if it got to that point. I'm astonished that you actually essentially self-promoted that show. I, I assumed that you had a small team in place and that you'd moved here with um, a manager or an agent. Because um, as I'm sure you, you remember, because it was your first ever show in England, people were singing along. The yeah. whole crowd was singing, knew all the words. Yeah. And you seemed astonished. Yeah, I was. I was, because my only show in Australia was to my family and friends and they just want to drink and party in Australia. No one like was a fan of my music. So, um, it was a massive shift. And then I, after that show, I just knew I'd made the right decision to come here. Um, and yeah, I just kept thinking about, um, how can I stay, you know, how can I stay longer? Um, and I kept thinking, okay, I need to release another thing, you know, but then I met a manager who's like, take your time should be an album you know we've got to release on the label and then and then that's when i started learning about the intricacies of a campaign and you know releasing a single artwork and all that stuff to me was all a bit of a blur because i just dropped it um for free in the past or i think the last record a second ep there was a tiny little single or something but it wasn't much of this big idea of 
you know, the whole product, the business behind the music. Um, and I, I was learning that in the deep end, yeah, having to go into all these meetings and say, I, I sort of want it to look like this. I have no idea. And they're like, we can source you, create a direct, you know, it's, and it got really tricky trying to articulate the branding side of things because I was just like, oh, I thought I just made the music and uploaded it to TuneCore. That was what I did. Um, or CD Baby or, you know, Reverb Nation, whatever you want to use. Um, but yeah, it was... Um, it's only fifty pound a year for a release. That's why I did it. Um, but yeah, it was it was a bit like it was. I was sort of winging it earlier on in my career. But I all just I just kept referring back to my university assignment of like, up when you release something new, update your press kit with all your new accolades. And hey, you announce in your little mini bio because you have a big bio. Well, that's what I learned. Um, you have, and this is what's true now. You have a big bio. And you have your sort of two sentence bio and um i was just constantly updating my thing like that my facebook page and, and it got to another level where i'd sort of try and meet, meet new people um to sort of open my network and that's sort of when we had done oh no this is i met you after my first album but i uh, sorry we, we had worked together after my first album but i was thinking of like how can i expand um, into more like territories, if that makes sense. And I think we're going to go into that a little bit later because there's a, there's a lot to be said about diversifying your output. Um, and we, it's on the it's on the notes. <laughs> but I was I was interested how you went from or how you transitioned from being self managed to to slowly building a team. Did it? Because um, I think a lot of people are looking for management, but there's always that question of looking for someone versus someone looking for you working with someone who where you're uh the 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 big fish in the small pond versus the the small fish in the big pond do you want to be with someone who has a huge roster who could maybe give you the leg up in certain positions or certain situations or do you want to be in a new smaller kind of uh company where you're going to be the the focus but there's maybe not as many peers to give you that boost i'm just interested in how you transition from you know, winging it to uh, having someone essentially steer the ship. Well, it's it was a bit of a um, convoluted journey, but and slightly messy. But I will talk about it because it's it's I think it's important to know. But when I signed this deal, my EP deal with the the EP two, you know that when I told that story, um, she was also like, I can also manage you. You know, I can. Um, she ran the label, but she also wanted to manage me. And at the time I was a bit like, mm, it's sort of double dipping. Um, uh, but sure, you know, I, I was also very non-confrontational. Um, so that's difficult to like, ag agreeable, sorry. So I was all like, yeah, okay, no worries. You know, I was a bit scared to say like, I'm not really comfortable with this. And so that happened and it got a bit complicated because the, they were doing, there was ideas with the second EP and I was against it, but my the label was suggesting the ideas but usually you should be conversing with your manager who fights for you but i'm like wait a minute this is yeah this is like uh, wait what and i don't i don't want to do that but wait i tell can you tell yourself um and it got really tricky and so i moved i was still managed by that same person but it was difficult it was a difficult relationship because i was so um I was so protective of, I loved making the music and I wanted it to be its thing, but I was very protective of like someone ruining it, you know, I don't know. I was very untrustworthy of, of people. And so, well, my trust was lost, unfortunately, with this person. Um, I signed a really bad deal. Um, and so I, I soon got rid of that person. And then I got interest from what's called AWOL now, which is like a distribution company. And they said, we want to sign your next project. Um, I was like, I'm down, you know, obviously at the time I was like, of course, yes, I'll do anything. Um, Cause I needed the advance <laughs> to pay, add my buffer. Um, but the, yeah, well, I don't know how many that was at the time, but they were like, you know, we can't sign this deal unless you get legal advice. Um, so I was like, well, what does that, do I need to see a lawyer? Um, oh, sorry. Do I need to see a lawyer? Sure, it's all right. Uh, and, they said, yeah, they suggested a lawyer and I caught up with a lawyer and he sort of sorted my deal out. Um, and then 
Oh, yeah, patterns sort of showing here, but the lawyer was like, hey, you know, I could also manage you as well. Um, and that turned in a very similar way. I lost my trust there as well. Some things went down um, because obviously he's controlling this, um, the really complicated details that normal people can't read. And yeah, yeah, some stuff happened in the first album I ever released. Um, and... Then, so I got rid of him quite quickly. So within a year, I sort of had one for about four months and then I moved to London and then I had another one for about for six months. And then, well, not really. And I've now learned they weren't my managers. They weren't doing anything. They were just, that was the title, if that makes sense. They were sort of telling people they were my managers, but our managers, a good manager is very proactive and they're doing things for you. But it was very much like sitting back, waiting for me to be like, can I play a show here? They'll be like, sure. And I'd go and organize it. And I'm like, but you're still going to take 20% cut commission of my... Anyway, um, so then I was self-managed for about uh, three years. I was self-managed the whole time, but they there were placeholders there. Um, and so when I got approached from Ninja Tune, um, they heard my first album. They said, we'd love to sign you. Um, they said, can we meet the team? So we got in the meeting, but I rocked up because I'd just gotten rid of the last manager. And she was like, sort of wanting to, this is what labels are usually like. They're a bit awkward when they're talking directly to the artist. And um, she was sort of like, hey, we're interested in signing you. We'd like to talk to representation though, because this feels a bit sort of, we don't want to, you know, there's, that's a quite a common thing in the industry in the record label side. But I was selfishly thinking, um, I don't want a new manager coming in and taking 20% of my advance, which is what which is what the case would have been. I was like, I really need this advance to live in London, um, but also I needed to make the record. And then after the advance, I would try and find a manager. But I was really set on finding a manager. Um, sorry, signing this advance unmanaged. So I signed the advance. So I signed the record deal with Ninja Tune. Um, un unmanaged advice as well. So it's not, <laughs> no, it wasn't a great deal. Because uh, I was just like, I got a lawyer... Um, but he wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't quite aligned with a new lawyer. I mean, but it wasn't quite anyway of my level of an artist. He was a big dog lawyer. So he sort of didn't really understand, um, what I needed there. So anyway, I signed a deal with Ninja Tune and then we were working on my Wallflower campaign. Like I'd even delivered them the masters. It was that far down the line. And they were like, Jordan, we need to start, you know, there needs to be like a manager here running this campaign. Um, and I said, I don't know anyone and I'm very like untrustworthy if you can suggest some people. So they suggested like four agencies and um, one person, uh, Gerard, my current manager, who sort of at the time, or still is managing Bonobo. And so I met Gerard and we, we had a good click. We clicked, but I was still very like, you have to prove me right. In my head, I was like, this person has to do everything right for a year straight and then I'll give them one out of 10 and every year will be one extra down the line but very quickly I trusted him um and yeah we still work together so I have a great relationship but it came through two sort of bad experiences which were great to, for growing um and yeah he didn't get any of my advance so <laughs> maybe he deserves some a perfect outcome <laughs> <laughs> well I think it's so important especially as um a young person to experience things and even on your own um even by your own error and misjudgment just to um yeah i guess the industry is incredibly rough and tough it's also incredibly beautiful but to have these formative moments and experiences and years um are so important because you learn where the boundaries are and you learn what you want and what you need and what is sustainable mm. um and on that, like, how did you find your life changed on a day-to-day -day level when the Ninja Tune deal came through? You had men management. You were, I presume, playing more shows. Yeah. Um, you had more money coming in. Did you lose the DIY aspect of what you were doing creatively or it opened more doors to be able to be more creative with more people? Um, I think creatively i was still in that so this is my second year i was in london now um but i was still very much in the collaboration vibe so i think i still had that same ethos in my uh process but having the 
team, having a team around me and feeling sort of supported, uh, not emotionally, but I felt like there were people invested in, in my music, which sort of empowered me because I felt in a way my whole career up until then was sort of like me against sort of winging it, me against the world, trying to just blag it, release stuff and sort of rely on the music. But as I learned later in, in my career, there's so much more than just the music that you need to have a successful campaign. Um, if you have really, this is a really bad example, but if you have really horrible visuals, but an amazing song, um, it doesn't, for some reason, they just don't connect as well as like great visuals, but a mediocre song. Um, so that's sort of the way it's changing now anyway, but it's much more about the product. Um, and Ninja Tune was, turned me that way into thinking about you know, you need to have a cohesive visual aesthetic. You need to um, conduct yourself in a certain way on social media that's consistent, whether it be yourself or whatever, but have a consistent presence, like as in consistent posting. Um, and yeah, there was, there was, but having that team backing me was amazing because it freed me up to, yeah, I would do the classic stereotypical thing of go to the studio and then come home and not do any emails or anything. But before I was going, to my bedroom, <laughs> the other room, and then coming out and trying to do four hours of emails or planning or um, budgeting or something like that. But I was still at that stage my own tool manager and driving the little van, but because um, I couldn't afford a, one, but um, so I still controlled. I still felt like for a while I needed control still because I had um, lost trust with people. So I was like, I'm going to control as much as I can and you know, someone would suggest something, I'd be like, can you show me exactly what you mean? Put that in dot form. You know, I really needed to see everything. And then, and then I'm like, all oh, right, I do trust you. You know, that's a great idea sort of thing. And it took me many, many, many times to trust that. And yeah, it, it, it's, it was to my own detriment, the stubbornness and untrustworthiness of my um, uh, self that prevented these people into my life, um, into my team and world. But it's through when I trusted them, it enabled them to work better, build the campaign more, but it also gave me the freedom to not worry about them. And I could just write, you know, write and um, go to sleep, you know, with that sort of thing. But I think a, a, an element of that uh, lack of trust or almost a bit of a pessimistic outlook in terms of being, being uh, I don't know, given bad advice or ripped off or misled. I think I'm not suggesting everyone should go out and just, be untrustful of anyone but what that led you to do was to really understand all the processes to to know what the accounts look like to know how to put a tour together to know what would be missing from an album campaign mm. and, I, and i think that that's a healthy uh set of things to understand you know yeah i think a lot of the times i have friends that have had managers a lot earlier on in their career and they sort of wake up um, and go, oh, cool, I'm doing that today. They check their calendar, their manager's running their whole business. Um, but I think in a way that's not healthy either because you lose sort of, life isn't just about the music in, in my eyes. is That's not, that's an unrealistic model because those people, are, they're really successful. Um, they don't need to worry as much about the business or the, or um, any, anything like that. But when it's a real when you're really trying to grow your career, it's it's really important to understand, um, like you say, with you know, with touring, uh, there's lots of artists now that say, I want to go and play that show and I want to get a, a four-piece string section and a band. Um, cool, I'm going to do that. But they don't realize when you itemize every band member on stage and their cost performance fees and and the cost of a venue, and they're only going to get paid um, 500 pounds for the show, but there's 2,000 in expenses. Um, then they get hit with this surprise, like, "Wow, it's got to look. I'm losing money. What is this?" Um, but that happens a lot with people with managers that say yes. So, yeah, my advice for people that are unmanaged is to sort of do as much as you can to the point where you really feel like it's hindering the creative process, but. Um, that's, I personally think that's quite far down the line because you can do a lot, um, without a manager. Um, you can, 
you can do that extra hour of emails, but when those emails or planning becomes sort of four, you know, four hours, it it's really does affect your process or, yeah, you know, when 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 you're having to have a legal conversation with a record label, that's when I needed to get a manager. But um, it's very possible to do it to a certain point. It just requires a bit more time. Um, but it's like, it's what you need to do if you want to have a career. If you want to be a musician, like there are lots of talented people um, that are musicians, but they're not having a long career or even a career because it's like, I'll make music and people are going to discover it. Yeah, I'm that good. You know, they're going to discover it. But um, it's just not how it works. You just need to, it's about the product and getting it out. But conversely, I think a lot of the most successful artists uh, manage to straddle the, the business and the, the creative side equally. I'm talking like the Jay-Zs, the, the Puff Daddies, you know. And there's, um, the, the, interestingly, I heard someone say once that only hip-hop artists manage to run successful artist-led labels and i can't think of any example that disagrees with that it's only rappers that run labels <laughs> somehow you don't see a band or a singer or a guitarist who started a, a label that that like really took off but um by the by um yeah i think i think having that understanding of the wider aspect is 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 really useful mm. essentially yeah uh, totally and yeah and also sort of protects you in a sense from having the mickey taken down the line you yeah. understand what things should look like and how things should operate yeah because even now and i'm in a stage in my career now where i'm like a free agent um and i i have the opportunity to re-sign with ninja tune my same label a new label or um self-release on a distribution level and own the music, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm meeting these people. Um, so one, you know, I could meet a major label and they say, um, here's a massive advance, but we will own, um, your next album for 27 years or something. I, I'll be like, okay, if I get X amount of streams at 20% for 27 years versus, um, less amount of streams at 100% on AWOL or something like that then really what is it but i only know that because i've had a deal two different types of deals and it's it's understanding the business side because again i've had a friend sign a deal be like yeah man, i just want the advance but not thinking about the percentage royalty loss or is it even ownership for life so stuff like that um because i yeah because of my earlier deals i'm sort of really that's where i'm still a bit untrustworthy and really want to be involved um but i'm sure i'll get to a point where i yeah, relinquish that <laughs> for sure and how across uh i guess the back end of music are you or were you in that period of time be it streaming royalties uh other avenues to finding income um so like how do you mean like how other than performing and and selling a, a digital mp3 so all in terms of like well, how else was i earning income or how, how much did i know about yeah more like uh the different aspects of earning money through music yeah so for me um i was i think there's production which is huge so i would message random rappers and um say hey can i make a beat um if they liked it I'd, it'd be like a beat on spec is called um if they liked it we may have a session down the line of which I sort of really have to awkwardly say now, you know, um, can this, can this be paid somehow? I'll, I'll do a 50 pound or anything. I'll do it for anything. Like, what can you offer? And that ranges from the level of an artist. If they're a bigger artist, there's more budget for them to pay you. But, um, it was, so production was a big one, but session instrumentation was a big one for me. So I played guitar and piano and I would be playing in other people's bands. Um, I even did lots of covers gigs early in London at like a pub down my um area just doing you know because i did that in australia as well so i was like hey can i come play tonight for two hours um so i was earning like that i then the royal then it was sort of the gigs and then the when i signed my record deal a year later my for my first album which is a small advance that tied me over as well so um from there it's still sort of my only income is like um royalties when i recoup 
or um, shows or production or songwriting because I've written lots of songs for other artists now that's like really slowly trickling in. Uh, but yeah, that would they they're sort of that was how I was managing my finances back then. Great, um, and I'm aware we're getting closer to the end, so I do want to finish on uh, one last important point, which is, uh, and I guess a parallel to living sustainably financially, but more importantly, how have you found living uh, a sustainably uh, emotional and social life um, over the years and throughout all of this change? How have you um, grounded yourself? Um, well, I think partly earlier on in the early times of my life, in the first year of London, I was very driven to be busy. Um, so in a way that was emotionally fulfilling because I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm busy in London and living in, you know, one of the most expensive cities in the world and I was able to pay my rent. Um, but then after that, weirdly getting the space away from music, whether that be setting boundaries, which I did about three years in, I sort of was like, I'm only going to start my sessions at 10, which is early for musicians, but I like getting in early start at 10 and finish at six. Um, no matter how good the idea is, you know, the vibe is at the end. Um, cause I was having lots of late night sessions, um, waking up tired and, you know, you know, it's like being tired, you're just less driven, less, um, focused and stuff. So weirdly setting the boundary of a time limit. And even for when I was working in the supermarket, I sort of learned having a boundary anyway, no matter how good it was, I had to go to work. Um, it actually encourages a better workflow because you're more focused um, and you know there's an end goal. Whereas when you you get there, at, usually musicians get there at like three and they're like, man, let's vibe out. Let's listen to some Spotify, we'll watch some anime and then um, let's get some Uber Eats and let's start making some music. And it's already seven o'clock and then they're like, let's grab a drink. And you're like, come on, let's go. So I'm very different though. I'm very much like, let's go, let's go. Um, and that way of approaching music has, has given me mental freedom, having space and extra time away. But on top of that, you know, stuff like, um, having interests outside of music is important. You know, like I love, it's so geeky, but I love meditating and like in the morning it's important in my process and I love watching sport, I'm um, playing sports, cycling. Um, but all the things. And I think the biggest thing is separating, if possible, if your budget allows, like separating your work environment from your home environment. It's pretty important. Um, and when I did that about four years in, when I had enough money to pay rent for like a 300 pound a month studio, um, that was massive up uptick in, in like, uh, speed function, not functionality, um, efficiency and all, all the, all the good words happened then. Um, and yeah, and then ever since having my own space is really important to coming home and also ending it there and, um, yeah, living a normal life. And talking about that balance between work and life and family, you recently became a father. I did. And, uh, and moved out of the city. So I was just interested in how, <clears throat> how you navigate that as a, as a touring, uh, working artist and, and how, how, how anyone can navigate that and balance those things um, as part of their career where and maintaining longevity in both of them. Yeah, it's hard. It is hard. And it's a constant um, thing I'm learning because I took the first four months off. This was last June. Um, so June to October off um, where I was trying to be super invested. And, and then it became a point where, you know, I'm trying to work now, but that that's why that timing element was really key. I'd already practiced sort of ending and starting at a, starting and ending at a time. So I was sort of well practiced in that anyway. So I would have my day. I'd start from doing no, I did four months, nothing. Then I did one day, one day a week for two weeks. And then I slowly incrementally and doing like three days a week now. Um, and then like a half day. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's a lot harder to get in this zone I talk about because sometimes you're in this amazing like headspace where sometimes it can last weeks. So we just got ideas flying out. And then sometimes I'm like, this is my day, but I don't feel any inspiration. I'm so tired, obviously, you know, um, yeah. And to try and generate ideas. But my biggest thing is, um, you, 
you still have to do it because if you have no ideas and you don't do it, nothing, obviously nothing will come of it. Um, but if you're just sitting there like, oh, nothing's happening, I'm just going to, you know, build up my sound library on Splice and just spend three hours downloading kick drums. Then I hear a kick drum, I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then it starts a hip hop beat and I'm like, must or should be. But I, that with that beat, I'm going to play these chords. And it always comes from something. Um, so I really think that method is important of like, no matter what, you just, you got to go in. Um, can't catch a fish without, no, no, no. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's what I think. Trust the process. Yeah, trust it exactly. Yeah, it, it'll it'll work out if you just if you if you do it. Yeah, incredible. Well, that is all we have time for for our third masterclass with yourself, Jordan Rakai, boss man Bradley Zero, and myself, Henry. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this RA Exchange presented by Future Proof and Rhythm Section International. You can also watch snippets of this masterclass on our YouTube channel. The track you heard in this episode is the artist song Brace. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or stories you'd like to share, please send us an email at exchange at ra.co. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care. I'm about to lose my faith Taking all my medicine Diving into my mistake